Uh, so something you might know about me at this point, might not know, is that I love the parables. I would say, arguably, if you uh, put a gun to my head, I would tell you that the parables are my favorite part of Scripture. In no small part because each of us, we always talk about Scripture being the living word that, that changes every time we read it. Uh, and that is true, definitely. But I find it is more true with the parables than basically anything else. Uh, for me, at least. It seems every time I open one of these stories and really dig into them, I feel like I learn something more about myself, learn more something more about God, learn more something, something more about the people around me than I do in basically any other story. Uh, and I think this story, the, the story of the Good Samaritan, is no exception. Uh, in studying for today, I found out that uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin disagreed greatly about how to actually read this story. Uh, not saying that those guys disagreed about a lot of things. They disagreed about basically everything. But it was really fascinating to me that even something that seems as cut and dry as this story could be read in a number of different ways by a number of different people. Uh, and when I started studying it at first, I couldn't figure out, like I couldn't decide how to talk about it because we already talked about it recently uh, on our most recent Tuesday night adult class. Uh, a big chunk of that class, we talked about the Good Samaritan. Uh, but I tell you, uh, when I started reading it for this, it snuck up on me again. It, it, I saw it from a little bit of a different direction. Uh, so I want to jump right into it today to uh, see if it can sneak up on all of us together today. The parable begins, right, with a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, and in this time and in this place, and this was basically the case for a large part of human history, any time on the road is a time in danger. Uh, because if uh, you're far away from a city, you're not going to really be able to uh, uh, have any sort of justice close by, any sort of authority close by that would keep you safe from, you know, uh, any ne'er-do-wells that want to cause harm to you uh, that folks realize pretty easily, you know, if it's four hours to the closest town, there's not really going to be anybody here to, uh, to bear witness to the fact that I can rob somebody. So it's not really the safest uh, way to go about things, but it had to happen, right? Uh, so generally speaking, this man going from Jerusalem to Jericho uh, maybe shouldn't have been on the road on his own, right? We might could see an argument that being by yourself was not the best idea. Uh, it, you could say maybe that it made him an easy target. You could say maybe that when the robbers, robbers see him and they strip him of all he has and beat him and leave him for dead, that it's not necessarily a surprise, right? It's not really the most surprising part of the story. If you wanted to, you might even be able to say the man deserved it. You might even be able to make an argument that he put himself in this position. Do you think that's what going, is going through the minds of the priest and of the Levite when they come by this man on the road? Do you think that that's what they're thinking when they see him and say, well, that, that kind of serves him because that's He's by himself. What did he expect? Or maybe they see him and say, I'm so glad that it's him and not me. They might be saying there, but for the grace of God, go I. They might be saying, well, he got unlucky and I am lucky. I've heard so many different explanations of why these men would have hated this man enough to walk by. But on some level, it's hard for me to buy these excuses. 
Because on some level, I know how easy it is to walk by people. I know because just like you, I have walked past folks in need. I've seen them on the side of the road and I've just kept going. Even worse, sometimes I don't notice them at all. It doesn't take long in doing that. It becomes so easy to just ignore folks completely. Before we continue, I want to show this video uh, to show why I think this is the case, why it's so easy for us to walk past those in need and how easy it is to just walk by altogether. Watch this video with me, please. How, but how can we expect to notice strangers on the street when these people couldn't even notice their own family? Would you be able to notice if your closest family was sitting on the side of the road? Because we so often ignore the faces of the people that are near us. And I noticed the other day when I was driving down the road that that homeless folk know that, that we struggle to see them. The one guy uh, was standing on the corner of East Parkway and Poplar the other day, and he wanted people to see him so bad, he had a sign out that said, please spread some cheese on this broke cracker. Because he was trying to get folks to laugh, because if they could laugh, then they feel something, and if they feel something, then they notice him. But it's so hard to step away from what we're going towards, where we're headed, what we're doing. It's so easy for us to ignore folks because we have our own lives, we have our own agendas, we have our own busy schedules. And something like that can completely derail our day. Ultimately, the story of a good Samaritan is a story of a man who sees the unseeable. Seeing those the world has forgotten is hard though, because we have so much going on, because we have so many reasonable excuses we tell ourselves. We have a meeting to get to. We're on a trip that cannot be derailed. We have to make it to the show. All I have is 20s. All I have is a card even. Do you take Venmo? These questions seem trifling in comparison, though, to the amount of derailing that has to have happened to the Samaritan's life in order for him to stop and see this man. This wasn't just a minute of conversation. This was a day of his life taken up by taking care of this man. So our excuses seem trifling in comparison, and I'm just as guilty as anybody, if anything more so, but if we let our excuses get in the way of even looking folks in the eye or seeing the person under the dirt, then what are we even doing here? But the Samaritan, the hero of the parable, sees the man in pain. He offers the man what he has and begins the man on the road to recovery, all because he chose to see the man in his time of need. But besides offering him bandages and a ride, the Samaritan doesn't seem to have much more to offer. There's only so much he can do. So what does he do from here? He takes him to someone who can help. He takes him to an innkeeper who has the supplies and the ability to take care of the need at hand. This is an important part of the story that I think we tend to look over. Because as I said earlier, we have excuses. We have good excuses, and one of the excuses is there's only so much I can do. 
there's only so much that I'm able to do to help. We feel powerless because we can't solve homelessness. We can't fix the issue at the border. We can't end hunger. So what are we supposed to do? We're just individuals. Even as a group, we're just a small church. What are we supposed to be able to do? I believe, though, that we are supposed to follow the example of the Samaritan by seeking out those with knowledge and resource to alleviate the pain, to add to a chorus of folks who are helping a little by little, because when we're able to help a little by little as a group, as a large group of believers, we are able to share the kingdom of God to the world. The kingdom of God is full of those doing the work on the ground to heal and to grow. The kingdom is full of those combating the systems that put folk on the street in the first place and that separate families and break hearts. We just have to look for them. We have to stand beside them and then we have to do what we can do to help. We might even find ourselves in situations where we're the innkeeper, where we are specifically available to take care of the problem at hand. When someone is hurting on our doorstep and we're distinctly qualified to take care of them. But none of these are possible if we don't first keep our hearts and our eyes open for the needs that are around us. That is how we show compassion. I know this is one of the most well-known parables of Jesus' teaching career. It's one of those stories that has entered the secular vernacular. You know, those stories that are so drilled into us as people that you can say Good Samaritan anywhere, no matter if somebody's been in church once or if they've been in church a thousand times, and they will know what you're talking about. As a descriptor of a good person who steps out of the way to help someone in need. But because of that, we tend to forget the scandal of Jesus casting a Samaritan as the hero to this story. Samaria was a loathed place by the people of Judea. So much so, as we read a few weeks ago, a Samaritan town brought James and John to the point where they were wanting to cast fire from heaven to burn that city down. The Samaritans were a hated group of people. But Jesus makes a Samaritan the star of the show. Not only the star, but in Luke's gospel specifically, there's this divine language to describe the compassion and the mercy that the Samaritan is showing. The Greek words for the compassion and mercy in this story are seen only twice elsewhere in Luke's gospel. One referring to Jesus himself, and the other in the parable of the prodigal son. I completely blanked on which parable it was. But the father and the prodigal son shows the compassion and the mercy uh, with the same language that is used to talk about the good Samaritan in this story. And as we know, that father in that story is most commonly viewed as an allegory for God, right? As God the father that is caring opulently for us the same way this father cares so much extravagantly for his son. So the Samaritan then is part of an elite group between Jesus, who we understand to be God in the flesh, and this metaphor for God in this parable 
of the prodigal son. So it's almost like the Samaritan's compassion and mercy is godlike in a way. And uh, when Jesus tells the lawyer, go and do likewise, he's basically saying, be like God, just like the Samaritan is being like God. You can hear the scandal of that once you realize just how hated the Samaritans were. Because the Samaritan is loving like God loves. The Samaritan is showing the same level of compassion and mercy that God shows to us every day, that Jesus showed throughout his ministry, even at the cross. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus make the Samaritan the star of the show? It's the whole purpose of the parable, ultimately. As we read, a lawyer came to Jesus to test him. Now, this isn't a Morgan and Morgan for the people kind of lawyer. A Gaddy, Keltner, Bienvenue, and Montesi kind of lawyer. This is a lawyer who is well-versed in the law, the Torah. This guy knows his Bible in and out. And we see that when, when he asks the question and Jesus does that Jesus thing where he turns the question around on him. And the guy is so excited to pull his Bible drills out and answer the question like that. But then he says, because this is the ultimate test, right? He says, so who is my neighbor? And that's what leads us to this story. And so often I've heard this story and I've thought the, Jesus is saying the man on the side of the road is your neighbor. Take care of your neighbor. And that's not wrong. The man on the side of the road is our neighbor. We're supposed to take care of our neighbors. But the whole purpose of the story is to tell this lawyer that the man that he loathes, the Samaritan, understands who his neighbor is already because he's your neighbor too. And when he says, who is the neighbor in this story that shows compassion? Is it the, is it the priest? Is it the Levite? And the man says, it is the one who showed mercy on him. And you can hear him almost saying that in gritted teeth because he's trying to answer the question as well as he can without saying Samaritan because he can't even name the man. He can't even get himself to say it. You know that bit in sitcoms whenever like the real cool like Fonzie character did something wrong, but he can't say, I'm sorry. And so as soon as he tries to actually, I'm you know, it just like falls out of his mouth because he can't figure out how to say it. It's almost like he's physically incapable of saying it. This man is physically incapable of saying that a Samaritan did a good thing. So where is the line, right? Where is who our neighbor is? And clearly, wherever the line is, is past the person that you're so angry towards you're unable to say their name. Wherever the line is, it is well past our own prejudices and problems. I'm here to tell you that if we want to know who our neighbor is, we have to be able to say their name. If we want to be able to understand who our neighbor is, we have to first be able to name them. If Jesus came to us today and told this same story, a Samaritan wouldn't be the hero. Who would be the hero? 
a Mexican, an Iranian, someone from China or from California or from Texas or from Collierville, the black guy from the Delta, maybe? Someone you've judged because of where they're from or what they look like rather than who they are. Any wall that keeps you from showing compassion to someone is a wall that needs to be torn down. Any division, any dividing line that keeps you from seeing the image of Christ in someone's face is a line that needs to be crossed. It's in learning to do this that we can learn to see people in their times of need and work to bring the kingdom of God closer to this place, closer to right now. May we learn to say the names of our brothers and our sisters. May we learn to reach across the table and embrace the image of God we tend to forget. May we pray.